This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Jesus calls us by thy mercy, Savior, may we hear thy call. Give our hearts to thine obedience, serve and love thee best of all. Lord, as we just sang, this is our prayer. Help us to hear as you call us. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, it's good to be with you. I want to begin by uh, talking a little bit about one of my favorite things uh, to do in my, my free time. One of my favorite things to do is to go to concerts to listen to live music. And I pretty much love and enjoy any live music, but I especially love when I'm able to go to smaller venues, uh, the kind where it's sort of general admission only, where you can really only stand up and you can wiggle your way up to the front of the stage and be right in the thick of the action. And it doesn't always happen when I, when I go to a concert, but whenever I do go, I'm always hoping for that moment. That moment where you go from listening to music with a crowd of perfect strangers to experiencing something sacred together. Sometimes it's through the power of the lyrics. Sometimes it's the raw emotion of the performer and the performance. Sometimes it's just the experience of witnessing the heights of human skill and creativity. But when it happens, and it's rare, but when it happens, it's like entering into a deeper reality. It's like you're touching transcendence. It's a kind of communion, not just with the artist and not just with those perfect strangers, but with beauty itself. And when it happens, it feels like you're drawn into something beyond yourself. If you've experienced something like this, you know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't, it can be kind of hard to describe. But there's a theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar that does a pretty good job explaining what I'm trying to say. This is what he writes. He says, when a person is struck by something truly significant, an arrow pierces his heart at his most personal level. The issue is one that concerns him. You must change your life. You must henceforth live in response to this unique and genuine revelation. The man to whom this has happened is marked for life. He has trodden a holy ground that is in the world but not of it. He cannot return to the purely worldly world. When he encounters something significant like this, he bears the brand mark of his encounter with beauty. What Balthazar is talking about is a kind of transformative encounter. And I wonder if you've ever experienced something like that. Maybe not at a concert, maybe in a museum looking at a piece of art. Or maybe through natural beauty, like looking at the sea or a beautiful landscape or a mountain range. Maybe it was witnessing the birth of a child or giving birth to a child. Maybe it was through prayer or through worship. But if you've had an encounter like this, you know that it pierces you. It leaves a kind of holy wound and it beckons you to something more. And having a sense of this kind of encounter helps us to understand what happens to Peter 
on his small fishing boat 2,000 years ago on the Sea of Galilee. Peter encounters the living God, and it begins to change everything for him. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage in Luke 5, and we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And as we look at this passage, we'll see that four things emerge in answer to this question. To be a disciple means to be chosen, to be confronted, to be commissioned, and to be committed to Jesus. So in verse 1, we find Jesus, and he's standing along the lake of Gennesaret, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And a big crowd has gathered because people love hearing Jesus teach and speak. And so Jesus hops into a boat in order to convert the cove into a natural amphitheater because the crowd was so large, he needed to use the natural effects of the cove and the water to amplify his voice so everyone could hear him who wanted to hear him speak. And as all of this is happening, the first aspect of what it means to be a disciple, to be chosen by Jesus, comes into view for us. In verse 2 of our chapter, we see a small but very important detail in the text. We're told that there's not one, but two boats on the shore. It's a seemingly minor detail, but it's given to show that Jesus had a choice here. He had a choice between the two boats. And he chooses to commandeer Simon Peter or Simon or Peter. They're all the same person. He chooses that boat and not the other. Jesus chooses Peter. So why did he pick Peter? Well, it's important to know that this isn't the first time that these two men have met. They've actually spent a significant amount of time together. If you look back in chapter 4, you'll see that Peter healed Simon, or Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever. And Jesus was spending time in Peter's home. This actually was probably sort of ground zero for his healing ministry in the region. And so they would have known each other. And in these interactions, Jesus must have noticed something about Peter. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was Peter's hospitality. Maybe it was his leadership. Maybe it was his passion. We're not sure. But we do know that Jesus didn't pick Peter because Peter was perfect. Just keep reading the gospel and you'll see just how imperfect Peter was. I think he picked Peter because of Peter's potential. Peter was a sturdy block of marble from which Jesus could chisel a glorious work of art. So it is with all of the disciples that Jesus chooses. Now, when we're talking about God choosing people, what we're talking about is election. And I know that this can be a fraught concept, so I want to clarify a few things about what the Bible says about election, about God choosing people. So the first thing is this. God doesn't pick people because they're so great. He doesn't choose people because they're worthy of being chosen. We see this with the election of Israel from among the nations in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 7, God tells us that he didn't choose Israel because they were strong and powerful and numerous. In fact, they were exactly the opposite. They were weak and fledgling. They were a vulnerable nation. And God chose them because he loved them. And in order to demonstrate his greatness, to do something great with this insignificant people. We see the same thing with Jesus choosing his disciples. He doesn't go straight for the influencers. He doesn't go for the Pharisees and the scribes as he's gathering a team to start this movement. 
he goes for the nobodies, the uneducated fishermen from the country. So that's the first thing to clarify. And the second is that God doesn't pick his people instead of other people, but for the sake of other people. Again, this is a clear pattern that we see in the Old Testament. God chooses Abraham so that through Abraham and his people, he might bless the nations. Likewise with Israel, he chooses Israel to be a light to all of the nations, to the whole world. God chooses Peter, he chooses you and me, not instead of all those other people, but to use us to reach them. So to summarize what I'm trying to say, God's chosen people are the weak and the foolish ones of this world. He's the ones that he chooses to do something great with, not because we are so great. He uses us to reach the world. So the first thing it means to be a disciple is to be picked by Jesus, to be chosen. And the second thing it means is to be confronted by Jesus. Now, after teaching the crowds from the boat, Jesus turns to Peter, who I guess was steering the boat for him, and he says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch, in verse four. Now, if you know anything about fishing in the Sea of Galilee in the first century, you'll know that this is really terrible advice that Jesus gives Peter. For those of us who are unfamiliar with some of the best practices of fishing, there's a couple things that you ought to know. The first is that nobody fished with nets during the day. The nets that they used were called trammel nets, and they were made of thick linen rope, so fish could see them during the day. These nets were really effective for fishing at night, but they were worthless for fishing during the day. And the second thing you need to know is that the best place to catch fish was not in the deep waters. It was actually along the shore where the, the streams flow into the lake. So knowing this, we see that this is actually a pretty hilarious scene. It's like Jesus is trolling Peter here. In verse five, this is how Peter responds to this outlandish command that Jesus makes. I wonder what his tone of voice would have been like. He says, master, we've worked all night but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down my nets. And try to imagine the look on Peter's face as he said this to Jesus. Peter was tired from fishing all night, probably angry that he didn't catch anything. And he had just finished washing up his nets, cleaning up. And then Jesus, the landlubber, tells him to get back out there with those clean nets. This would be like spending three hours in your backyard trying to fix your gas lawnmower that's broken. And then your neighbor, the one who hires a landscaper, comes over with an extension cord and asks if you've tried plugging it in. The scene is a bit ridiculous, but that's the point. All of this is to set up the miracle and the miracle is functioning to set up this confrontation. Peter is confronted by the truth of Jesus and the truth of himself. Peter obeys Jesus' terrible fishing advice, and he proceeds to catch hundreds of fish, enough to sink two boats. It's the haul of a lifetime. Everyone would have been shocked at what just happened. But more shocking than the miracle is Peter's response. And it contrasts sharply with the way everybody else had responded to Jesus up until this point in time. The crowds can't get enough of Jesus. They want to keep him for themselves. But Peter really sees Jesus. 
And his response is not to cling to Jesus, but to recoil from him. In verse 8, when Simon Peter saw the haul of fish, he falls down at Jesus' knees and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So what's going on here? Why does Peter respond like this? Well, the days leading up to this encounter, Peter has had a front row seat to the message and the ministry of Jesus. He heard Jesus' teaching. He saw Jesus' miracles. He saw it up close in the synagogue in his own home as Jesus healed his mother-in-law. But what happens in the boat is different. It's more personal. This was for him. And it's clear here that Luke is drawing a connection to Isaiah 6, the passage that was read earlier. In the presence of the Holy One, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And in the presence of the Holy One, Peter says, Depart from me. I am a sinful man. Now, I don't think Peter understands Jesus fully here. I don't think he has a comprehensive Christology But he has seen enough in this encounter to know that Jesus is no mere mortal. Peter is like a man coming out of a dark cave whose eyes are blinded by the brilliance of the sun. And he catches a quick glimpse before he has to shut his eyes because it's so painful. And he doesn't have to see everything clearly to realize that he was in the dark and he's now seeing light. On that boat, the veil is removed for Peter. And he's struck by something significant. He's struck by a revelation of Jesus. This man in his boat is not just a great teacher. He's not just a great healer. He's not just a great tilapia fisherman. Peter comes face to face with the Lord. And in this moment, he realizes that he is utterly inadequate, unworthy, that he is a sinful man. To be a disciple means to be confronted with who Jesus is and who we are in relation to him. I love how Pastor Tim Keller describes what happens in this encounter. When we're confronted with Jesus, we're confronted with the reality that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. But at the same time, we're more accepted and loved than we ever dared dreamed. This confrontation with Jesus is part judgment, to be sure, but it is all grace. It is to know that we are absolutely exposed in his presence and at the same time absolutely loved by him. What happens next in this scene highlights the third aspect of discipleship. Disciples are chosen and they're confronted by Jesus in order to be commissioned by Jesus. Peter tells Jesus to leave him when he is in his presence and it's almost like Jesus doesn't hear him or he ignores him. He says in verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Jesus dignifies Peter, this unworthy, this beloved man. And he says, don't worry, Peter. We're gonna be partners from now on. You and I are going to be working together. From now on signals a clear break from the past. Peter, you used to be devoting yourself to something else to fishing, now I'm inviting you into something different. From now on, you will be catching people. On the one hand, this metaphor makes perfect sense, speaking to a career fisherman, but it's an interesting image when we consider how Peter fished. He fished at night, tricking fish 
who would eventually die and be sold and eaten. Clearly, I don't think Jesus is telling Peter to trick people into following him. So what is it that Jesus is inviting Peter into here? Well, I want to unpack this image of catching people by telling you a a short story. Nearly 15 years ago, when I was in seminary in uh, New England, north north of Boston, Susan and I had a really unique housing uh, situation. It was pretty common for um, old New England estates. They were called live-ins. So I would do work around a property in exchange for rent. So uh, most of my time, I would spend uh, chopping wood or doing landscaping things. And uh, it was a pretty nice gig for a poor seminary student. And the property was gorgeous. They had a beautiful spring-fed pond in the backyard that was about the size of a baseball diamond. It would freeze over in the winter. You could ice skate on it. Uh, And in the summer, it was full of frogs and turtles and fish. And one spring, uh, we had a nor'easter. And rain came, the winds came, and it flooded the pond. I went out on a Saturday morning to go put my hours in to do my work, to to earn my my housing. And I discovered that all over the property there were puddles, dozens and dozens of puddles, big ones and small ones. And they were all filled with fish from the pond. They were swept out of the pond and they were scattered everywhere all over the property. The fish were seemingly happy in those little puddles. They had no idea that they were in grave danger, that they just wouldn't last long. They would die there, birds would come and snatch them. And so what I did was found a little net, like the net little kids use to catch tadpoles and crawfish and a little plastic bucket. And I spent the next few hours in the morning rescuing all of those fish. I would catch them with the nets and put them in the bucket and put them back into the pond. I don't know how many I caught, dozens maybe 50, maybe 100. I caught loads of them. And that was the last time that I felt like an absolute hero. It was an amazing day. Fishing that day, it was a kind of fishing, was a rescue operation. And this is what I think Jesus has in mind for Peter when he says, you're going to be catching people. That verb, catching, literally means to capture alive or to rescue. He's saying a terrible storm has happened, A terrible storm has come through and the world is an absolute mess and people are in grave danger everywhere. They're living in small muddy puddles, but they belong in the freshwater pond. And Peter, I'm going to use you to rescue those people. This is what it means to catch people. It's an amazing thing. Disciples aren't just people who are saved by Jesus. They are invited to become part of Jesus's rescue operation. Now, in this story, up until this point, the the three aspects of discipleship that we've seen so far focus on what Jesus does. And the fourth aspect focuses on our response. To be a disciple means to be committed to Jesus. And Peter models this for us in an amazing way. He follows Jesus, and it's radical in how he does so. He turns away from his old life, and he begins a new one. He drops everything. He leaves all of those fish, he leaves his boat, and he goes all in with Jesus. For Peter, this commitment meant a sudden career change. But I don't think that Jesus is calling all of us to a sudden career change. Perhaps he is with you, and if that's the case, I don't want to get in the way, but I don't think he's calling all of us to drop our day jobs to follow him. So what does it mean for us to be commissioned by Jesus 
and to be committed to him? Well, very simply, I think it means this. It means saying yes. It means dropping everything that holds us back in order to say yes to Jesus. It's not a very complicated thing. It's also not a very easy thing to do. To be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, means that we say yes to Jesus. And of course, this isn't a one-time thing. Disciples say yes again and again, every single day, every hour, every moment. And if you're here this morning or you're tuning in over the live stream, I think Jesus is calling each one of us to something this morning. I don't know what it is, only you might know that. Maybe it's to slow down and to do less. Maybe it's to re-engage and to get back into the game. Maybe Jesus is calling you to speak up. Maybe he's calling you to be quiet. Maybe it's to take a risk of love, to ask for help, to apologize, to overlook something that you don't need to mention. Maybe it's to forgive. Maybe it's to share the hope of Christ with one of your neighbors or one of your colleagues. Maybe it's to trust him in the midst of the really difficult thing that you're walking through right now. Or maybe it's to trust him for the very first time. What is Jesus calling you to this morning? And sometimes, if you're anything like me, we can overcomplicate things, overcomplicate what it means to follow Jesus. I'm very good at nuancing my way out of simple obedience and making excuses not to say yes because I'm afraid or because I don't know the end from the beginning. But this is what it means to trust Jesus. When God calls us, the only, responsible, the only responsibility a disciple has is to say yes. And God's on the hook for what happens next. We are to obey and leave the outcomes and entrust the consequences to him. So whatever you hear Jesus saying this morning through his word and in the context of community, say yes to Jesus. The shortest path to loving God and to loving your neighbor, to seeking justice, to finding joy, to discovering your purpose for the short time that you have on this earth, is to say yes to Jesus. This is the simplest and the most radical thing that you can do in this world, and this is what the world needs. And I wanna end by remixing something author Richard Foster has written. At the end of the day, the world doesn't need more smart people or more gifted people. The world doesn't need more experts. The world needs people who hear the voice of Jesus and are quick to say yes. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to hear the call of Christ this morning. That we would hear it clearly and that we would say yes. I pray these things in his name. Amen.